Hi, I'm Brian Cooper. I would say it was amazingly terrifying. At the time, it was a very, very frightening experience. I didn't have time to interpret it. I would have like things happening like one after the other to the point where I didn't have time to sit back and think like, what is this thing that's talking to me? Everything started to change. I was tapping into these eerie emotions like I was living in a horror movie, but it was my daily reality. What you're hearing are the voices of three individuals, Natalie, Elias, and Noah, young people from different backgrounds who live very separate lives in different parts of Canada, but who've all gone through one profound and life-altering experience. They've all lived through psychosis. Welcome to Parallel Realities. In this three-part podcast, we'll shed light on what psychosis is and how it was experienced by three young people who've gone through it themselves, along with two family members who've supported a loved one going through psychosis for the first time. You'll learn from doctors who will explain psychosis from a medical perspective and how it's treated, but you'll also hear the real struggles that are often faced in getting to care and accepting treatment, the impacts of the condition, and the triumphs and inspiration of surviving being pulled into a new and often frightening reality. You'll walk alongside Natalie, Elias, and Noah, Nicole and Heidi, as they share their experiences, hopes, fears, and lessons learned on their journey towards recovery from this often misunderstood condition. Brought to you by the Canadian Consortium for Early Intervention in Psychosis, and in partnership with the Early Psychosis Intervention Ontario Network, and the Schizophrenia Society of Canada, this is Parallel Realities. Episode 1, Onset. Before we get started, we wanted to give a little bit of background about this podcast. My name is Brian Cooper. I'm the manager with the Clegghorn Early Intervention Clinic at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, Ontario. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and have worked in mental health since about 2007, and since 2011 have worked exclusively in early psychosis intervention. So full disclosure, I'm fully invested in this field. We set out to make this podcast to teach and to share with those who may have been impacted by psychosis, so either somebody who's going through it themselves or supporting somebody who's going through psychosis, But we also wanted to create something that anybody could pick up and listen to and and learn from. In my years in this field, I've seen a lot of things and have learned a lot of different ways to approach care from a clinical standpoint. But as time has gone on, in addition to those clinical tools and approaches, I've come to realize the unparalleled power of lived experience. To learn about an illness and explore ways to cope through the stories and experiences of the people who have been through it before themselves. For a condition like psychosis that can be really debilitating on so many levels, but also carries with it a lot of stigma and shame and misunderstanding, the impact and and inspiration of these stories can be huge. In fact, it was kind of a young person with lived experience who suggested we do this podcast in the first place. So we're happy that we were able to find people who are courageous enough to share their stories, and we're thrilled that you'll be able to walk alongside them as they tell them. So that all said, before we get started hearing those stories, we thought it'd be helpful to have two medical experts, Dr. Howard Margulies and Dr. Sudhakar Sivapalan, give us a bit of background about what psychosis is and what it isn't. Dr. Howard Margulies is a psychiatrist and associate professor at McGill University in Montreal and acts as the director for the Program for the Evaluation and Prevention of Psychosis at the McGill University Health Centre. Dr. Sudhakar Sivapalan is a psychiatrist in Edmonton, working with the Edmonton Early Psychosis Intervention Clinic, and is an associate clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Alberta. Here is Dr. Sivapalan explaining, in broad terms, what psychosis is. With psychosis, I often try to describe it to individuals as having experiences that might be disconnected from reality in some form. The difficult challenge, of course, is telling it apart from the rest of reality can be difficult, but it can include things that are heard, things that are seen, ideas that 
might be placed into your one-to-one's head, ideas that might be taken out of one's head, the way we interpret some of the interactions that we have going on around us. When that starts to happen, it can definitely affect our behavior, how we respond to other people, how we respond to other things. And so that combination of interpretation and behavior is often what gets defined as psychosis. Dr. Margulies goes on to describe a little bit more about what the symptoms of psychosis are. Broadly speaking, we classify them generally as, you know, psychosis being the positive or positive symptoms as being what we refer to as delusions, which is basically when um, your version of something happening is different than, than those around you. And you may feel, you know, delusions can come in many flavors, if you will. There can be paranoid delusions where you think, someone's out to get you or after you, or like people talking about you. And they can be also grandiose delusions, which is having fantastical thoughts about special abilities, talents, or, or powers, if you will. So delusions can be in many different spheres. And then there's, then there's the hallucinations, which are very common. And mainly they're auditory that we see, hearing sounds or noises or voices. And they can be also visual. You can see things that are distorted or, or unusual. But they can actually affect any of the senses. People actually have tactile hallucinations, gustatory hallucinations, even and olfactory hallucinations, although those are quite uh, more rare than visual or auditory hallucinations. Positive symptoms are typically what we think are as added to the illness, added to a person or delusions and hallucinations. We, we usually don't have these experiences, although it's true that the number of people who will have a psychotic experience in their lifetime is quite high. Community estimates are very high on that point, but they don't persist. And it's when these symptoms persist that it really becomes more a diagnosis of a major psychotic illness, schizophrenia and related illnesses, if you will. And then they have what's taken away from the illness or, or taken away from the person, which is classically referred to as negative symptoms. And we think of that as like lack of motivation, lack of drive. You know, it may typically manifest as the person has harder time socializing with others. They're more more isolated, hard time taking a shower, brushing their teeth, getting dressed, just being motivated to do everyday activities. But there are other symptoms that are very important as well in psychosis that we see, including what we call cognitive symptoms. So it affects their memory and their work, what we call working memory and their ability to concentrate and focus and, and, and be focused. And it also can lead to depression, not surprisingly, because this is a very traumatic experience. So in essence, psychosis is really interpreting or experiencing the world differently and sometimes struggling to distinguish between what's real. So what most people would acknowledge is real, and what's only experienced by that person. Somebody going through psychosis is kind of living in a parallel reality. And this can be expressed through those positive symptoms, so hallucinations such as voices or delusions, those false beliefs, which you'll come to learn, as strange and unbelievable as they might seem to somebody on the outside, can be an absolute truth to those who are experiencing it. These positive symptoms coupled with the negative symptoms, so the lack of motivation, the struggling with socializing in school, as you might expect, can lead to huge challenges for those young people who are going through it, especially when you add those cognitive and mood impacts as well. We'll talk a little bit more about diagnosis and causes of psychosis later, but for now, let's move on to hearing the stories of those who've gone through it. We asked Elias, Noah, and Natalie to describe a little bit about their lives before experiencing psychosis and what it was like as symptoms began to evolve. Here's Elias. There's a few different parts of my life before psychosis. When I was really young, I was really active. I played a lot of sports. I was really good at school. And I don't know, I was just kind of like living life as a child should. But as I got more into high school, things started to shift a little bit, even though it was a few years before I actually had my episode of psychosis. And I started to withdraw a bit more. I started to have like a bit more mood instability. I would fluctuate a lot. I'd get like really high and then really low. And I felt depressed a lot. And I really started to get more into substance use, which in the end, I think really kind of added to the experience of psychosis. How old would you have been around that time? So my episode of psychosis was when I was 20. 
And then high school years into like second year of university was when I started to get into substances and really had my mood change a lot more and had some of those distortions pop up. They came on kind of subtly at first, and the the difficult thing is they were tied in with my cannabis use. At first, they would just kind of pop up when I was high, and it would be things like, oh, like my friends are talking about me, and like they really don't like me, and sort of some like light paranoia. And it would kind of progress into more full-fledged, like, oh, I'm on the Truman Show, and like everyone in my life is actors, and like I can't trust anyone, and this is all kind of fake. So... As I progressed more and more into like a full-fledged episode of psychosis, the distortions changed along with it. And my perception of reality just kind of shifted gradually and gradually and gradually until it was disconnected from the world around me. When I sobered up, that kind of like went away and I just kind of brushed it to the side. Like it didn't, it didn't seem important enough. I was like, oh, it was just like pot. I'm sure everyone has like those sorts of ideas. And I'd have like a lot of experiences like that. I remember one time I was walking along in the woods and I knew all of a sudden the same sort of epiphany that there were snipers in the bushes and they were trained on me. And if I moved at all, they would shoot me. And that was a hundred percent real to me. And I knew for a fact that they would shoot me if I moved. So I stood still for a good, like five, 10 minutes, just in the middle of like nowhere. And then just suddenly like ran the opposite way. And again, when I sobered up, I just kind of pushed it to the side. I'm like, oh, like just another high thing and not important enough to deal with. So when I was out of high school and actually getting into university, I'd start to have these things happen when I wasn't high. And they would be mostly like benign. Like a lot of it started out with like a voice in my head, like that I thought was me, but it was like a different part of me telling me to like go get like a glass of water or go go for a walk or go like to the pub and get something to eat. But even that gradually progressed. And even as I didn't smoke pot for like the month and a half, two months before I was hospitalized the first time, like that kind of progressed and progressed and progressed and didn't go away with being sober. Can you give us a little bit more information? You mentioned hearing a voice for the first time. Now, did that first come up when you were high or was that when you were sober? It's really hard for me to pinpoint when it actually started because Mm -hmm. it was like so gradual. At first, I thought it was just like my thoughts, my internal monologue, like, go get a glass of water. Like, I'm telling myself that. But then it took on a personality of its own. And eventually, it started to become, like, punitive. It would get, like, really harsh and really unforgiving and started threatening me. And that's, like, when I started to realize that it was something other than me and that, like, these commands were something that were coming from an unknown place, but I knew that the the voice, the the person saying those commands was like omnipotent and omnipresent and essentially all all knowing. Um, so there's no fooling it and I needed to follow it because it knew better than me. That must have been scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was um it was a trip. I mean, I remember it would tell me to uh go to parks. I was in Ottawa at the time. And it would tell me to go to like different parks around the city at like random times, like three, four in the morning, just like, oh, you need to get there by 3.30. Otherwise, your family's going to get killed or um, you need to get to this park by midnight. Otherwise, someone's going to break into your sister's apartment and just like assault them. And I started like texting my family, like, oh, make sure to lock your doors, like be safe. And I started telling them that I love them a lot more <laughs> in those times because I honestly believe that like if I didn't do something right, that they would die or worse. I didn't have time to interpret it. I would have like things happening like one after the other to the point where I didn't have time to sit back and think like, what is this thing that's talking to me? I knew it was talking specifically to me and that like other people couldn't hear it, but I knew it was talking to me. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of like, a lot of responsibility. Like I felt like I needed to do all these things to make sure that bad things wouldn't happen. But then there was also periods of like just joy. I think the closest analogy I can think of is like that stereotypical moment of clarity that we say people with addictions might have where they reach a point where they just can see clearly and like everything makes sense. And I had a few of those when I was going through psychosis as well. And 
it wasn't that I was going through psychosis that I realized it was like that things in my life weren't going well, that I needed to make a change, that like the world around me is beautiful, even if all these things are going terribly wrong around me and in my head. You'll likely have noticed from Elias's description that some of those symptoms previously described, Elias experienced. So those hallucinations like hearing an all-knowing voice telling him to do certain things and having thoughts and fears that he and his family were in grave danger. And to quote him, this was 100% real. Elias also commented on the role of substance use in his onset, a trigger you'll hear about at points throughout this podcast. But for now, let's hear from Noah. I was a straight-A student, was pretty well the top student in my high school and won a scholarship to university. I played lots of sports. I like to say I played some of the noble sports, so soccer, track and field, men's artistic gymnastics. I was on my way working towards becoming either a scientist or a classical pianist and composer. How old would you have been when you started to kind of notice something was uh, something was changing? I remember it clearly the answer to that question. So it was right before I turned 21, which is kind of a significant birthday, like you're in the prime of your life. So I was 20 going on 21 and everything started to change. I was tapping into these eerie emotions like I was living in a horror movie, but it was my daily reality. Paranoia crept up on me and gave me a warped sense of reality and uh, suspicion of those around me, whether they were strangers or family members or friends. I feel mostly this was induced by stress and that triggered just the genetic vulnerability I had to turn into an episode of psychosis. I didn't have the insight to really realize I needed help. I just thought I was tapping into sort of a new level of reality somehow, like it was this magical journey I was on, all kind of related to my spirituality beliefs at the time. So I went with it. I unfortunately didn't doubt it. And so just kind of following it the way I did and allowing it to sweep me away is one of the reasons it wasn't caught as early as it could have been in my case. And then the other reason it wasn't caught early is because I was quite isolated at the time. I was mostly by myself, just in my apartment, on the computer, or practicing piano. So I kept my thoughts to myself. I'm generally kind of a quiet guy. Don't share a lot about myself, except doing something like this, a podcast. <laughs> I mean, it's tough to put into words because it's an altered state of consciousness. Your mind is not working the way that it normally does when you're healthy. It's almost like you're drunk or high, but for a really long time. And so you end up down this rabbit hole of kind of like conspiracy thoughts and new emotions, and it, it overwhelms your entire reality. So I wasn't exactly hearing voices, but I was hearing messages like from radio. It was kind of abrupt, actually. I heard the Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles on the radio one day. And there's this famous line in it, which is that they sing, the magical mystery tour is coming to take you away. And I felt like that summed up and was very apropos to what I was experiencing in my life with this kind of early onset of psychosis. And so this magical mystery tour, so to speak, was happening to me. That was a moment like an aha moment, but a bad aha moment where I was like, okay, I, I, this is a message directed to me and only me from the radio. And so I'm going to start listening to radio in this new way now and searching for messages directly for me. So it was this funny mix of making myself the center of the universe and also listening to things in a sort of a coded wordplay kind of way. So, yeah, horror movie in the sense that it was like I was the star. Right. And everything was scripted. I doubted everything. It became quite complex and complicated. On a certain level, I did know that something was wrong. It's just that it felt magical at first, like it was this natural high. I was entering this hidden reality and I was privy to secrets that no one else knew. It was like being in a really pleasant dream for the first little while. And I would have the occasional thought of, oh, maybe something's up. But a bigger part of me wanted to kind of get everything I could out of this experience and not, not kill my vibe, you know? And so I, I went with it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As it all progressed, it became unmanageable. 
it was no longer my own sort of private alternative reality. Ending up hospitalized uh, for 24 hours, given medication. Uh, it all felt surreal when it was happening so quickly. So I didn't really take it seriously, but I was still kind of in that altered state. So that's that's another reason why I felt that way. I was still living in a half dream state. But with psychosis months later, there was a lot of anxiety and lack of logic, which amounted to a lot of wasted days. Because psychosis skews your thinking. So when I'm in it, I'm sensitive to criticism and don't want help. But when I return from it, I realized it was mostly anxious suffering. So Noah's experiences were a little bit different than Elias's. While he didn't necessarily hear a voice, he was very much enmeshed in a different and all-consuming reality of his own. Again, similar to what Dr. Margulies described, having beliefs of mystical powers or hearing messages from the radio, for example, what we often call ideas of reference. Here's Dr. Sivapalan commenting on this. What we've heard from Noah was that feature of ideas of reference, the fact that there was a message within a song on a radio that was specifically for him. And that kind of kicked off a whole, a whole thought process. That's a fairly common feature. You may have also noticed that Noah referenced the stress he feels brought on his episode, along with his genetic vulnerability towards developing psychosis, which does raise the question, is there a cause for psychosis? We brought this to our physicians. Here's how Dr. Sivapalan explained it. So, yes, being the short answer, but definitely a complicated answer. Psychosis can come on for, for several reasons, and it's probably nice to think about it in the model of you have a brain, and the brain is going to undergo certain experiences or stressors. And that interaction is what can lead to symptoms of psychosis. So there might be something inherent in how one's brain is structured that leaves them vulnerable to developing psychosis. Often there can be an external trigger, but there doesn't have to be. Simply getting older and experiencing life in and of itself might be sufficient enough, but you can also have other triggers such as substance use, illness, a significant sort of what I'd call a social stressor. So whether that's a big change in life or experiencing trauma, transitioning to adulthood, going to university, moving to another country can all serve as significant stressors. And so from one perspective, you can say that those things cause psychosis, but it also has to happen in a brain that may be vulnerable due to some inherent structure. And so when I say it that way, it speaks to the biological risks. So whether or not family members have experienced psychosis, then your genetics may have caused you to be vulnerable in that way. And here's Natalie describing her lived experience. Yeah, so um, I am a Scottish immigrant here in Canada. I live on the West Coast. I had a very up and down journey through most of my life, which I now know is because of bipolar disorder. That kind of dictated my travel, my work choices. Um, everything was either running on highs or lows. Um, I traveled quite a lot, but again, that was part of the bipolar disorder. I would pick up one day and say, I'm going to Australia tomorrow and would jump on a plane and would end up in another country. With a little bit of hindsight, I would have learned that psychosis was a factor in bipolar disorder, but it wasn't until that episode hit that I learned about it. 11 years old was when I first had uh, an episode of depression. Throughout my life, I went to extreme highs and lows until the age of 25 uh, was where I had my most major episode and fell into psychosis. Looking back, I couldn't really decipher what kind of episode it was. Like I was always very aware and uh, conscious of whether I was feeling low or high. Psychosis was a a kind of culmination of both. So I just felt all my senses were extremely heightened. And that was something I had never really experienced before with my regular episodes. It was like this pure raw electricity that was burning through my bones. It just felt like everything I touched had a sparkle to it. And, um, you know, maybe that is a sign of mania, but I, I also had my my depressive thoughts and I was, you know, on the brink of, of suffering with uh, the lows. So. It's so hard to put into words. Like psychosis to me was just a otherworldly experience. 
Hindsight is a great thing. <laughs> At the time, I definitely did not acknowledge that anything was awry. Looking back now, um, I had a blog at the time and all of the posts were talking in complete tongues. Um, I found a flash drive recently through going through things in my house and I found parts of stories that I had written, um, all of which just they're a little less sensical than I would like. Um, a friend at the time took me aside and said, you know what, I want to have a chat with you. I, I think you have this illness called bipolar disorder. And I didn't talk to that friend for a year because I felt I was being labeled. I was being called crazy. I was being called, you know, however you want to look at it, abnormal. And I was not impressed. I didn't even know what bipolar was at the time. So I definitely wasn't willing to take a new label on. I think part of it was just, I didn't really want to know the truth. I wasn't really ready to know the truth at that point. I would say it was amazingly terrifying. <laughs> I had very big religious delusions, um, something I now learned that is kind of societal and cultural to Western Europe. But um, I took on this belief that I was Jesus and some people in my life manifested to God and the devil. There was a lot that went into triggering that. It was also, I mean, the, the weekend that I remember it fully kicking off was Easter weekend. There were so many triggers, actually, now that I, I talk about it out loud. There were so many things that came into play. And then, I mean, I was in psychosis for six months. So throughout that time, every week, there was a new trigger that just kind of exacerbated those symptoms. I'll give you a little bit of what happened um, when I thought I was Jesus. I sold all my belongings and I moved into my car. I went on a pilgrimage from the west coast of Canada to Nova Scotia, New Scotland, to find New Natalie. And I traveled the country for six months. And every stop that we had, every person that we interacted with, every rainy day or sunny day was an opportunity to learn something about myself. So, for example, we stopped in Hope. I was crying my eyes out. I was out of Hope. And God said, you have to go to this town called Hope. And we got there and there was a woman who was really struggling. She didn't have car insurance. She, she needed uh, her prescription refilled. And I said, you know, this is an opportunity for me to help someone. And she was so thankful. And we sat talking for three days and we became great friends. So everything, every obstacle or every new experience was an opportunity to learn something about myself and to learn what I had in me to share with the world. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> every time I left, you know, I one of these experiences, I, I would write about it and I would be filled with this new sense of hope and urgency to do better in my life, which I don't think I really had this urge to be a great person or help other people when I was younger or before psychosis, I should say. Psychosis showed me that we were all inherently connected and that there was some beautiful string that held us all together. And if we looked for the best parts of that, that we would succeed even more in life. I call psychosis my rose-tinted glasses because they, um, they've allowed me to see a lot clearer now. At the time, it was a very, very frightening experience. Um, the, you know, all of the delusions, senses, hallucinations were all very, very raw and real. But in the bigger picture, it allowed me to see things a little bit better and, and shape a better future for myself. common misconception about psychosis is that it's often assumed that by experiencing psychosis, it automatically means that somebody has schizophrenia. So it might seem somewhat unexpected to hear Natalie's description about experiencing psychosis in the context of bipolar disorder. Here's Dr. Margulies highlighting what psychosis means when it comes to medical diagnosis. Psychosis is not schizophrenia, although Schizophrenia has symptoms of psychosis as a part of the diagnosis for the majority of people. One way of thinking about it is the following. First of all, no person's story with schizophrenia or psychosis even is the same. And every person's experience of it and presentation of it is slightly different. Even though they have common themes and common kind of a common denominator, if you will, from a neuroanatomical, neurochemical basis, but no person's presentation is exactly the same. 
And it often reflects, you know, their own history, their own experiences, their own culture, even. And that's why we see different presentations. But psychosis, as you actually, as you accurately stated, is not specifically schizophrenia. So psychosis can occur in many different illnesses. It can occur just because of substance use. And sometimes it can clear very rapidly after, like, say, 48 hours, it might clear. That's not schizophrenia. Psychosis can occur in dementia. Psychosis can occur in Parkinson's disease. It can occur in other illnesses as well, other uh, the other psychiatric illnesses that are not necessarily either bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. When I'm teaching medical students about psychosis, I talk about the fact that psychosis is a generic term that has nothing to do with the diagnosis per se. Think of it like fever. You know, fever is not a diagnosis, and you can have fever in many different illnesses and many different conditions. As you're probably starting to see, psychosis is a unique and deeply personal reality experienced solely by that person going through it. However, people live these new realities in the real world that we all share. And the fact of the matter is that the impact of one person's psychosis has a huge ripple effect in the world around them. That impact is often most felt by the families who love and support these individuals. Parents, siblings, partners, and friends are often faced with rapidly changing and worrying behaviors, usually without an explanation as to why this is happening or knowing ways to support them. We asked two family members, Nicole, a mom living in rural Ontario, and Heidi, a sister in Western Canada, about their experiences supporting somebody going through psychosis for the first time, what life was like before, and how it shifted as things evolved. Here is Nicole. She was always a very active, spontaneous, fun-loving child. She was very adventurous. We called her Dora the Explorer. We always have books on her coffee table. And so my children read at a very young age. She just loves to learn out of reading and stories and experiences. She was a very good swimmer, quick swimmer, and uh, she had that competitive edge to her in everything she did. She was, I would say, a very high achiever. She was kind of like a star child. So she uh, went away to school. Everything went really well. She continued to achieve, be a very high achiever. She worked about 24 hours a week on top of her full-time school. In her third year of university, her boyfriend, he moved in with her. I think at that point, they started to probably use a little bit more pot than what cannabis than they were. But she continued to work full hours. And she came home at Christmas. And I found she had lost a lot of weight. She wasn't feeling well. She wasn't eating well. She wasn't sleeping very much. I wondered at the time, I thought, oh, something's weird about this. So she came home at Christmas and we identified it as, you know, she was stressed. She needed to maybe work a little bit less hours at her job and focus on her school and make sure she was sleeping right, eating properly, continuing to exercise. There was a lot of stress around being an overachiever, I think. When she went back, we were all going to my mother's who lives eight hours away for Easter. And she said she couldn't come. And I had a I got feeling she just wasn't well, but we couldn't put her finger on very much except for she was saying, you know, she didn't have any appetite. She had lost weight. She'd say, you know, I'm not sleeping. I'm like, since Christmas, I haven't slept. I'm only sleeping two or three hours a night. And so then when we were at my mom's at Easter, she called and wanted us to bring everybody in the the living room. And uh, it was a very, uh, very difficult conversation. She was not making any sense, saying some some very uh, disturbing things, things that she would never, ever say in front of my mother or my sisters. And she kept just telling us, you know, we just need to listen to her. So obviously at that point, she was having delusions. Uh, she was fearful. So we came home and we're making a plan to go to get her because she was at university eight hours away. And then we got a phone call from one of her roommates saying that uh, he was really concerned. Could I talk to her? And she just was uh, afraid people were after her, that uh, her life was in danger, that we were in danger. Dr. Sivapalan offers a reaction to Nicole's description. When I reflect on individuals who have been under my care and what families have reported in terms of early futures, there's a lot of similarities. 
noticing that that change in behavior, that change in how the person was interacting with the rest of the family, not wanting to participate in certain things, all the way up to the topics being discussed, which wouldn't have reflected the usual way that individual would have talked about things with, with family members and topics being quite different and, you know, almost seeming like a bit of a different person. That's, that's actually quite a common story. And finally, here's Heidi describing her experience within her family. So my family, my sister, my mother and I, we moved around quite a bit, actually all around Canada. But once we came back to where I'm from in Victoria here, we became a little bit more stable. My sister and I are six years apart and I'm older than her. And we both have a passion for dance. So my sister really looked up to me. I was her big sister and we had a lot of fun times together, just doing normal sisterly things that you do. Things are a little bit different with my family because I actually, I did pursue dancing as a career. So I had left quite early to Mexico and then to the cruise lines and just sort of worked my way up with the, for a career in dance. So I was gone for contracts and this is maybe six months at a time and then I'd come home. So for me, I would, it's almost like I would step out of the family for a little while and then come back home for months at a time. So I slowly was seeing these changes, but it, it, it kind of, sh it shocked me a little bit because I was brought back home and then all of a sudden would see that, oh, my sister's different now. But I just assumed that this was just normal. You know, this is just normal for her. This is who she was becoming. Now let's fast forward a few months after that, when I came home, all of a sudden I was noticing really bizarre behavior. But again, I thought was just normal. I thought, okay, how can she be stubborn like this? How can she be a teenager like this? I wasn't like this, but that's just who she is. So um, she was 16 at the time. And I can give you a couple examples. I remember we were at home and all of a sudden she took off and ran down the street bare feet at night. And my mom's and my mom said, where is she? And I said, I, I don't know. And then we realized she was halfway down the road. And I thought, this is this is crazy. Why is she doing this? She's just acting out. She wants to go out and see some, maybe some boyfriend or something. I didn't know what was happening. And I think what happened was it started to get worse. For example, a couple of months after that, I noticed that she had taken my mother's car and just, just taken it and just driven off. And she did have her license, but she was then later stopped by a police officer because she was driving with no lights and heading up the wrong way down the street. And they thought that, well, obviously they pulled her over. And this is really concerning that my mother would, you know, she talked to me a lot about everything that was happening too, that I didn't always notice. And so I just started to see certain things like that happen. And then our, even in our relationship, another example was we out at McDonald's, just sitting there about to order some food. And I remember she was just staring at me and she leapt over and just slapped me on the face. And I, what I could, I had no idea what, what I did. I didn't know what happened. And so I was angry. So I was angry at her, angry that our, our family was all of a sudden changing. And my mom was worried and not having anyone to talk to and not, not knowing then what was happening. We just didn't know. I think it wasn't until a police officer actually spoke to my mom and said, has she ever just started to speak to her a bit more about maybe she's having a, a psychotic break? Maybe something there's something more here that she needs to be assessed. And that's when I think my mother started to realize maybe there is something more going on here. And it was hard to get the help that we needed. It was really hard. As was the case with each of our guests, psychosis, in the context of a psychotic illness, often hits in one's late teens or early 20s, which is a pretty important time in life for anyone. It's when we're really spreading our wings and defining who we are as individuals, whether it be moving out of our parents' house, starting a new job, going away to school, building new relationships, finding our passions, and embarking on our big life goals. 
With this in mind, we asked how psychosis interrupted day-to-day life with each of our guests, as well as those longer-term goals. Here's Elias. Uh, I essentially lost touch with all my friends. There were a few people that I'd been close to beforehand, but the isolation had started as I was going into university, and I didn't even go to Frosh Week. So there were some people I knew from high school, but even when I was going into university, I was already kind of alone. I knew a few people, but as I started to go deeper and deeper into the actual psychosis, it pulled me away from everything else because I developed this relationship to the voice, to my internal world, and to trying to protect my family from this like unseen force that like everything else kind of took a back, back seat. I started to skip going to class because at the same time, I'd start to have periods of feeling like really depressed, just like not being able to get out of bed, like stuck in like in an unmoving state just watching tv shows on like on a loop going from that to like times of just sheer panic attacks and not even knowing what this was that i was going through and just running around the city trying to burn off all this energy that was like building up in me that was just sheer panic and adrenaline so naturally it wasn't the best environment to learn it And then there was a bunch of other things that were happening at the same time. I had met a girl around the same time and that relationship got really distorted in my mind. And I started to have like a lot of really intense emotions about that. I, I started to kind of question the people I lived around. I thought that like they were psychopaths and that like I needed to like protect myself from them, that they were doing bad things and like that I was in danger in the place where I was living. So I constantly like, made sure to lock the door to my room and kind of, I think sometimes I even put little like test indicator things to see if like the door was opened when I was out. So there was no downtime because even in like the deep depression, I wasn't thinking about like what was happening. I was just kind of beating myself up. I was like, I had this show going on in the background and in the moments where I like could, I would watch it and try and, suck some joy out of it but for the most part I was just beating myself up for being stuck and not being able to like meet people and just feeling like all these different things. Here's Noah describing his experience. Well I guess it all kind of went on hold for a while. I had dropped out of university to study spirituality full-time and try and make my own way as an inventor. Psychosis happened and I spent the next oh more than five years, like about six years on kind of a path to proper full recovery. And here's Natalie. So I had actually just left my job at the time. It was a very stressful working environment and I started freelancing. So work for me actually really took off and the social aspect as well really took off because I found I was networking. I was really thriving on communication and social interaction. So that kind of things were really blossoming. The friendships I did have were starting to fall apart because they were seeing something alarming and things like taking care of my apartment and uh, regular activities were were going by the wayside because I was just so wrapped up in this new idea of connection and interaction. And yeah, it was it was a wild time. As you would expect, the interruption of, quote, normal life on a family dynamic can be profound as well. Heidi talked about how her relationship changed with her sister as things evolved. I didn't talk to her about it. I didn't open up to her about it. If anything, I found that I kind of steered clear from it. Like I just kind of avoided, I guess because we were slowly drifting apart because of her, she was changing and she was just different from me because of certain things that she was doing. So I didn't uh, think anything really of it. I don't think I handled it very well at all. Um, And I think that's because now looking back, um, obviously not, I'm more mature. I know that mental health is so prevalent. And, you know, 20 years ago, what did my mom and I know? We weren't prepared for anything like this to happen in our household. We were just so, or I was just so naive. And I feel sad to say that I don't think that I, I cared enough. My mom, of course, was speaking a lot to me, a lot about everything that was happening. So it was really, 
really overwhelming. It was a lot to handle. So her not having any supports, my sister not knowing what was going on. We just didn't know. We just didn't know. It became almost like a roller coaster ride. We didn't really know if we were going to get her on a good day or a bad day. And bearing in mind that this is when I was home. I was home and I was there to witness everything and be part of the family. But it became that, you know, the highs were when we had great days, when we go for hikes or go for coffees and do sisterly things and take dance classes. And the lows were when I felt she was mean and rude and I didn't know what was going on. And I just steered clear. I'm so sad to say that now, but I didn't know what to do. I became to be angry with the way things were handled. For example, my mom, she'd speak to me a lot and I wanted to be open and listen to my mother, but I began to feel like I was her partner, her counselor, her support person. And it was too much. It was too much. And I didn't know how to take it all in at the time. I didn't know how to help because I didn't know what to do. So I became very frustrated and very angry. And I would receive phone calls from my mom and updates. And I remember constantly hearing, oh, such and such and such a thing happened to my sister, but she's better now, but she's getting better. She's getting better. So my mom is very, very positive, but I was very frustrated at hearing all the things that were sort of going downhill, but then she was getting better and downhill. And then she was getting better. And I didn't know what to do with this information because I just kept hearing the same thing. But ultimately, she wasn't getting better, and I didn't know why. And here's Nicole describing her experience. I think people really came together, and when she was in the hospital, her sister, who lives north of us, came down and would go with us to the hospital, would call her daily. I think sometimes they don't know how to react to her symptoms, not to take things personally, and that constant reminder that if she is delusional or saying things that are not making sense or she's fearful or that it's not personal, it's the illness. And a lot of times um, until you're really stabilized on the medication, it's the illness talking. And so not to challenge those delusions. And I think as a family, that can be difficult. And so if you know someone is is afraid or saying there's too much noise in here or I just want to leave, as a parent, I try to be very attuned to that. One of the most difficult things is just to learn a different way to approach those situations and know when someone is well enough that you can have a conversation and say, okay, let's talk about this a little bit more. You may recall earlier on when we were speaking about the causes of psychosis, Dr. Sivapalan described how some stressors like substance use or trauma in a vulnerable brain can lead to psychosis. To that end, you might remember how Elias's cannabis use was very much tied in with his symptoms early on. We did ask whether, looking back, any of those with lived experience saw any triggers that they feel may have brought on their symptoms. Here's Noah. Yeah, I mean, I was a workaholic. I was taking on way too much, I think. So I guess I have two answers to that question, because one of the stress triggers that was really significant for me was, well, I'm, I'm an inventor as a sort of a side hobby. And at the time, I had an invention that I was trying to patent, but I couldn't afford lawyers. So I was doing all the legal work from scratch by myself. And uh, that was really difficult, like going through textbooks of, you know, patent law, intellectual property. And I had deadlines that I had to meet with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, where I was going to lose my investment and my intellectual property rights. So everything was kind of spiraling out of control in terms of that, because I'm not a lawyer by training. I was just a layperson. But then the other thing that was kind of a trigger was mindfulness, which is kind of an ironic answer, because... Often in mental health, we talk about like self-care and kind of um, things around that where mindfulness can be a really helpful way to alleviate anxiety. But for me, I was obsessed with mindfulness and it was like so all-consuming that if I wasn't practicing it 24 hours a day or, you know, at least 16 hours a day while I'm awake, 
I would feel like I had failed spiritually. And so I was really hard on myself. So basically to sum up your, your question, perfectionist and workaholic, bad combination. <laughs> yeah. For families, trying to support somebody going through a first episode of psychosis without yourself understanding what's going on as things are spiraling out of control, there can sometimes be a sense of feeling helpless, experiencing a lot of fear or blame, but there can also be a lot of hope. Heidi describes her feelings in supporting her mom and her sister during this period. I don't think that I'll know everything about her life because she's gone through so much. But I do blame myself for leaving and going on those contracts. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. So it's amazing. I guess I still do blame myself. (laughs) But leaving my sister and my mom to themselves and then coming home and seeing that things were different. It was, I, I blamed myself and I was mad at myself and mad at my sister and mad at my mother for everything that was happening. I didn't know if that was the reason. I didn't know if there was something else that happened that she wasn't speaking to me or to my mom about. I didn't know if it was, again, still just somewhat behavioral. I didn't know if, and I still won't know everything. My mom uh, always struggled with money. And so we did have to move around quite a bit. And we were were in and out of different schools. And um, that was hard. Maybe it was just harder for her. I don't know. So it's, it's, I'm kind of giving you an, I don't know answer, but I don't think that she had necessarily an easy life. Maybe it's just something that did happen um, without a trigger, without any reason behind it. Maybe it's just, uh, unfortunately for her, something wasn't correct in, in the brain or I don't know. But yeah, there's all those things to think about, including I I did blame myself. And I'm sure, and I know my mom blamed herself too. So, yeah. In each conversation, it seemed to be a common pattern that once symptoms began, people progressively got deeper into these new realities, and it seemed things inevitably became more and more intense as time went on until it reached a crescendo, a turning point moment on their journey towards recovery. Elias describes such a point here and comments on how important his family was in those darkest hours. Actually, the biggest high point was when I was talking to my mom, my mom gave me a call just kind of out of the blue to check up on me and see how things were going. And that conversation is what led me to the hospital. My mom actually like came from like out in the GTA and took the like earliest flight she could to come up to Ottawa and then took me to the hospital the next day. And what about it that your mom said or did got you to try to seek out some help for what was going on with you? It was just that she cared. Like I, I know phone calls are like not ideal for like connection, but I could hear in that call and her voice and like the whole setting that like she was concerned and that she loved me and that she just wanted me to be okay. And I had mentioned that I was feeling like suicidal and the, like the alarm in her voice and the like sheer realization that she wanted me to live. Like that was, that was a really kind of like good feeling among a lot of bad feelings. Noah talks about his experience being picked up by police and waking up in hospital. My very first time, the police brought me to the hospital when I was walking down the street on a snowy day without boots or a coat on. So that was kind of an alarming scene. I was detained, brought to hospital where I was clearly in an altered state. I woke up in the hospital. My parents were there. I knew something was terribly wrong. And all of the symptoms of kind of initial phase psychosis were there where I could barely think straight. It was like a tornado in my mind. So that was a really painful low. It was tough to believe, but even then I didn't fully realize that I needed help. And Natalie describes a point at the end of her cross-country journey where she started to develop a little insight in realizing that things really weren't adding up for her. 
Yeah. So actually I had went to the doctors and I think it was February for a prescription refill. And I guess I started off a big conversation about my uh, delusions at the time, not thinking there were delusions, just being, oh, have you heard about God? And at that time, the doctor put a referral into the mental health hospital here. And yeah, that was in the February. And I went off on my merry way. I think it was June that I started traveling across the country. I did not receive a phone call from that mental health hospital until the end of September. And at the time I was like, I, I, there can't be anything wrong. Like I must be magic. I must be an angel. I must be Jesus. Cause I just traveled the whole country and I'm fine. And then I was sitting on the ferry back from Vancouver one day and I had to think about all the things I'd experienced in the previous six, seven months. And I thought, wow, I don't think I know anyone else has experienced this kind of part of life. So I gave a call back to the mental health clinic and I said, I think I may just have to have a conversation with someone. <laughs> and then that was, I mean, that was the first step in my recovery. And, and that whole process has completely changed my life for the better. I had time to reflect, I mean, really on my whole life. And when I identified all these moments of depression and, and suicidality and mania and, and then the psychosis, when I start looking at that and I realized the amount of people I had met on my cross-country trip who they didn't see the same things as I did. They didn't hear the same things as I did. And I thought, well, how how can our realities be so different? And I think that was the thing that hit home most for me is how can I be hearing all and seeing all these things and tasting them, smelling them, but they're not physically there. Like that's a little bit of an alarm bell. Like there must be something going on. And that's when I, I mean, at, at the time when I called back, I, I was, it was very loosely. It was like, oh, maybe I'll have a chat with someone. Not knowing that when I went to see the case manager that I would be hospitalized straight away. As you might expect, families often play a pivotal role in supporting somebody getting to care, especially during these turning point moments. Here, Heidi speaks about a similar turning point for her sister and their family. There was a a New Year's Eve and my sister was with my mother and she had said some really horrible things that she expressed some suicidal ideations and, and said that she wanted to like kill herself. And I remember my mom convinced her to go into the hospital voluntarily. And this was the first time they were ever going to, she was ever going to go into a hospital, seek some help. But based on what she had said, my mom said, absolutely, we're taking you in. As with Elias's conversation with his mom, here's Nicole speaking about it from the other side as a mom herself. You know, the things that I focused on, uh, right or wrong, was that, you know, I love her. I love her unconditionally. Uh, Her dad loves her, her sisters love her, and that that will never change. And we would never, ever do anything to harm her, that we've always wanted to protect her uh, as a parent, that that's our job, and that we would never want any harm to any of our children. And so because of that, part of it is trust, to trust that I've always, you know, cared for her and cared for her well-being. And that, you know, for now, I felt that was the best thing uh, was for her to go to the hospital. But also, you know, when there's that opportunity, when they're saying, like, I'm really not well, you know, at times she'd say, like, I'm really not well, mom. You know, I'm not well. I know you're not well. And that's why we need to go see someone who can help you, a specialist. If you had diabetes and you were going into a coma, I would not let you go into a coma. I would say you need to go to the hospital. And if you couldn't make that decision for yourself, I would make that decision for you. And it's the same thing. It's just a different illness, right? I think when you see glimpses of insight and she reflects and says, I know I'm not well and I can get well, uh, you know, then it's like, okay, she's aware, she's got insight, she's thinking about what she needs to do. You know, I always look at, okay, what were her strengths? What was she really good at? And let's focus on that. Because even if you're not able to think well, you don't have to think well to swim. You get in the water, you just do it. As you can see, in each of our scenarios, as symptoms and circumstances reach that tipping point, each individual eventually ended up at a hospital for medical care for their condition. 
But getting to a hospital, as you can imagine, is only the start of the next chapter in someone's recovery that presents itself a whole new set of challenges and hopes on that journey. So the story is far from over. On the next episode of Parallel Realities, we'll explore what medical treatment is like for people going through psychosis, the often challenging pathways young people and families have in getting to the right care, and what it can be like to receive care for an illness you don't even think you have. Join us in episode two, Treatment. Treatment.